and welcome to the Wards Auto Podcast. My name is David Kiley, Senior Editor at Wards Auto and your host. This week, I'm joined by Mike Austin, the EV analyst at Guidehouse Transportation Insights, one of the industry's smartest analytics companies. Mike not only has great insights about the market, but is a former journalist, having worked for Hemings Motor News, Haggerty, Autoblog, in fact, he succeeded me as editor in that job, Pop Mechanics, Car and Driver, and a few others. Mike and I connected at the recent industry management briefing seminars hosted by the Center for Auto Research. When we come back to share that interview, we will let you in on what we both think about the pain and news connected with this transformation from an ICE industry to electrification. This podcast is brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. So I'm here with uh, Mike Austin. You are, these days, after being a journalist for a long time, you are a senior research analyst on EVs at Guidehouse Insights. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks, thanks for having me. So we are, for our listeners, uh, Mike and I are, are sitting up at Traverse City. We're attending the Center for Auto Research uh, Management Briefing Seminars. Mike, I got to tell you, we're a day and a half into the sessions, most of them having to do with EVs. My takeaway is that this is a freaking mess. <laughs> and I will elaborate on why I think it's a freaking mess, but what's your impression of just absorbing, you know, a day and a half so far of these, of these sessions and the panels and the stories and the experts about this transition from ICE to EVs? All right. Well, I'll, I'll start a little further out uh, and, and preface it with I'm an optimist that, you know, that's that's how I get through the the current reality is trying to look on the bright side of things. But um, I think a piece of it is it's a mess now, but we're all looking ahead. We're all looking at, you know, if you look at the, the Tesla, uh, the NACS plug, you know, with automakers joining the Tesla standard or the new charging uh, network that they just announced, it's like, oh, all right, well, all of a sudden, you're going to be able to charge your Ford at 12,000 Tesla ports. That solves charging. Well, no, it doesn't solve charging. That, that's not even going to start until next year. And even then, you know, it's going to take a while to roll out. And it's the same thing with EVs where it's like, you know, we're looking at somewhere between 30 and 50% EV sales by 2030, which is really only like 10 to 15% of the overall fleet. So it's like everyone's talking EVs and, and EVs aren't going to be the only thing on the road. It's going to accelerate a lot after the 2030 but you know it's a longer process than i think we're all thinking of so again i i you know when i'm sitting at my desk interviewing people looking at news writing my reports i'm i'm looking a little further out at like well hey when this is possible and this is all and it's all going to get there and that's sort of like the the salve i wash my brain with (laughs) And, (laughs) and to your point sometimes it's important to bring it back to yeah, this is a mess. Like 
charging charging doesn't work and like even if it is going to get better in two years two years is a long time and two years can make a big impression on the customer and you know there's a lot of other tiny little pieces even just in making the cars and and getting them built if you look at you know gm ramping up battery production all of this stuff is super complex and and yeah it's it's got a ways to go even if even if you know you can honestly say yeah we'll, we'll sort it out so <laughs> when i say it's a mess i'm actually not talking about the products because by and large the products are terrific right whether you're talking about an you know ionic 5 or the lyric or you know mercedes i was just driving the other day but but here's the thing so i drove up a a plug-in hybrid. Um, we're we're evaluating it for the uh, ten best uh, engines or t- ten best powertrains, really, for Wards. And uh, so it has a range, I think, of around fifty miles battery range. So obviously, driving up from Dearborn to Traverse City, I I blew through that. Now there are at this hotel about five or so chargers. Some of them were free, were available last night when I pulled the car back in. And I looked at them and I thought, you know, it's going to take me, I bet, 20 minutes at least to figure out how to pay for this charging. You know, because I don't have the app on my on my phone. Maybe they don't work. So I just, I literally, like, eh, the hell with it. I'm not going to charge it, uh, you know, back up again. And we just came out of a, a session where they talked about the complexity of of the charging infrastructure and getting everybody on the same song sheet about how to where to put them, how to pay for them, the interface, the handshake between the car and the charger, and the fact that the, these networks that are out there are, um, first of all, I think they're undercapitalized for what they need to do. You got the government involved with funding. You got the government saying that if you want the money, you're going to have to prove 97% uptime. And Tesla even falls a little bit short of 97%. This is what I mean by it's it's a mess. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Again, I, I like this this interplay we have because because yeah. again, my brain's like, yeah, but that's right now, <laughs> and I think that that's that's too easily done by the automakers or EV proponents. That you know, it, it's really easy to gloss over that that's real. But I mean, again, at least it will. I, I'll say it's going to get better because you know the, I mean the the charger uptime. Yeah, we'll be interested to see how that works, and I think it's been a it's been a learning curve for the non-Tesla charging companies, where they had you know they were in a rush to get equipment. They got equipment that um, you know wasn't reliable or didn't have the right internal diagnostics, and now they're they're moving through that. And again, it's getting better, but it's still like I don't you wouldn't say they did a good job. But uh, another piece of that. Of the questions and the complexity is in the in the NEVI funding, the uh, new electrical vehicle infrastructure bill that's giving all this funding for public charging. There are requirements. There's the 97% uptime, but they also have to comply with two standards. And I'm forgetting the exact um, abbreviations, but there's four letters. They start with O. Like one of them is OCPP. So one of them 
says that you need to be able to talk to other networks. So you need to be able to integrate. It's a, it's a, uh, a standard protocol that a charger can talk and integrate with other networks and change networks if possible. So, you know, if, if you have one brand, it can work on an app across other ones. So like the Ford charging network in the Ford car is a good example. They, they're coordinating different branded charging providers into one thing. And then the other one is a, a standard for communications with the charger, for that remote management and that remote diagnostic. And, and that stuff also plays into the payment pass-through. So the standards are there, and they're working on getting them. But, but again, going back to the now, is no, it's really messed up now. It's like <laughs> we, have, we have an ISO standard for, for charging and um, plug-in charge, which is when you, you just plug in your car and your software and your payment that you've made out with your automaker just pay you know it, it pays for everything so you just put the plug in and that it works that is on an iso standard the, that iso standard was updated but plug and charge came out like two or three years ago and it's just now starting and sometimes it doesn't work yeah so that's that's the reality i think that is like yeah it is messed up is we have a bunch of pieces in place and we know how to solve it and we haven't solved it and sometimes like incredibly frustratingly so you're like you know, like the, the fast charging is probably the biggest one where, especially if you use one near your house, you're like, this thing's been broken for, you know, three weeks. <laughs> Why isn't someone fixing it? Well, we, we have stories because we test drive cars all the time, you know, at, at wards. And, and we all have stories about going to this one particular Meyer grocery store, you know, in Michigan near where we, we live. And, um, and the stories about, you know, Going back in and finding that it's the uh, it, you're you're parked on the wrong side, or the it doesn't work, or um, any number of uh, of things. In fact, uh, again, they, we test drive different cars, but I had a Mercedes or or a BMW, and uh, and granted, this is a this is a test journalist problem, but. I plugged in the, the thing to charge while I was in Meyer. I came out, I couldn't figure out how to disengage the thing. And it took me like 20 minutes of phone calls and dealing with the, the electronic manual to figure out, okay, how do you get this cable off the charger? So there's uh, growing pains and things like that. But one of the things that the panel just talked about was that uh, Ohio was first state to get this funding. And they have seven different uh, providers that are going to get this money and be responsible for establishing the fast charging network. One of them is a grocery chain. You you know, there are companies from different walks of life that are providing the space and the real estate without necessarily having to pour new concrete, you know. And so it's this fragmentation that worries me. Because everybody's going to think that they've got a better way to do it. There's going to be all these nuances. Your people with EVs are going to, I feel like they're perennially or for some time to come going to be faced with this situation of, okay, here's a charger, but I, it's, gonna, it's taken me 20 minutes so far to try to figure out how to get the power from this thing into my car and pay for it. Yeah, I, I think there's – you're right. And the fragmentation, again, I'll, I'll gloss it over. One of the analogies in that panel was um, 
was banking. You know, it used to be that your ATM card might work at an ATM outside of your bank, but it had to be in the right network. And a lot of work was done for that. And now, you know, any card works anywhere, basically. Um, but I, I think I think you hit on a, on a key point here, which is that um, there are all these issues and all this interoperability. And I, I put a lot of it on the automakers on a couple of different topics. And and it's it's classic in the sense that they've done this before where they have some new technology or some new feature and they don't really explain it and people don't like it. And I think this is the key area here is they don't understand the how little people understand or, or the reluctant EV people have are coming in with a prejudice and that anything that goes wrong or anything that's a problem is going to have a very lasting impact on them. So the regular person that goes to a charger, you know, it's it's not unreasonable to think that somebody's going to want to turn in their lease and, and just get a different car after a couple tries because it's it's that much different and the automakers like i said they haven't really realized like well like you know they kind of treat it like well charging isn't our problem and again now they're going to build their own network but that's going to take like five years at least so and and that's one thing where you have to give tesla credit where you know they made it easy and they made it simple and they made it this sort of thing to understand. And another big one for me with that, with that sort of, I would say, failure by the automakers is the whole range issue. They're touting ranges. And if you talk to someone that owns an EV, they know 80, 90% of charging occurs at home. They start with a full tank every day. They are rarely thinking about range. And a lot of them, it's probably a second or third car. But so the EV owners know that. The automakers know that from the EV owners. And they're still putting an ad out that says 250 miles of range or 300 miles of range. But if you go on a road trip, your 300-mile EV is probably not going more than like 180 miles on a stretch. And that's, that's easily explained in a few minutes. And maybe someone who's reluctant to have an EV, isn't gonna, that's going to turn them off because they think they can go 400 miles on their gas car. But having that conversation and explaining that and doing the customer education is a hell of a lot better than someone buying a, an EV they think is going to go 250 miles, they think is going to charge in 20 minutes, show up at a 50 kilowatt station and spend 10 minutes getting the payment sorted out and then waiting another 50 minutes to get half the charge they wanted. Well, so you, you hit on two things that I think are big wild cards in the adoption rate, okay? Three things, actually. One is affordability, right? Because one of the one of the data points uh, from JD Power was that seventy percent of EV sales are essentially premium and luxury cars so far, whereas you know it's only fifteen percent of the volume you know of the normal fleet. Yeah, that, that's one thing. Secondly, the consumer. Okay, I'm going to say this. A lot of my listeners probably not going not, not going to like this, but. The public at large, okay, they're not that inquisitive. They're not that tolerant about learning new things that don't jibe with what they already believe, right? So there's a lot of forces at work here that are making EVs almost uh, a, a negative or a demon. There's a political conversation in, in the country. Th- th- there are politicians who say, 
you're going to take my ice car out of my dead cold hands. I, I no interest in EVs. I'm never going to be an EV guy. You know, it's like that. That's helpful. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. saying that facetiously. Um, but you also have uh, education. Okay, I believe that a vast effort to educate the public about why we're doing this, how to do it right, how to th- you know the whole. Except automakers don't want to spend the money and the time on that. They want to spend the money and the time launching their vehicles and advertising their brand. I had this conversation with a CEO a few years ago. I said, you know, you've got this fund. This is, I said to him, I said, you've got this fund that's sort of an ad hoc investment fund to fund startups that are connected with the EV transformation and, and autonomous driving, things like that. I said, you could do a lot worse than spend $250 million of it funding a company that does nothing except maintain chargers. <laughs> I, I said, it's going to be a good business model, but trust me. And he said, oh, you know, we've talked about the, the EV infrastructure. We, we really think that's, a, a, that's something for the government and for, uh, uh, you know, for our industry association. And blah, 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 blah. But it's not on us. And I said, well, I guess that's one point of view. But do you want to be seen as a leader in this space or not? Because infrastructure... Is, is definitely going to be a big part of making this thing work. And if you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for other people to do it, then, then you're not going to be seen as a leader. And, um, and what did we see last week? We saw seven automakers band together to kind of hot foot the fast charging network. So I was prescient. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the risk here, that, and I don't think automakers understand, like, how serious this risk is, is that, okay, we're moving towards electrification for a number of reasons. And some automakers are saying, you know, we're even going to get ahead of regulations. Some of it, even if you're just saying regulation-driven, the the signs are pointing to, you know, we're moving towards, like, global decarbonization of transportation somewhere between 2040 and 2050. Like, it's it's going to happen no matter what your beliefs are. And and the reasons are, you know, basically carbon. Um and so, but the automakers, what I'm saying is they don't, I don't think they understand this risk of like when we're trying to get to higher levels of adoption, when you're getting to, you know, moving to a more affordable price point or moving to people that don't have access to off-street parking or, you know, you're, you're running this risk of people rejecting EVs. And, you know, that's, that's a problem for your business case because you just put in all of this investment to ramp up in EVs and ramp up in battery production and you're, doing, and you're putting all this work into being able to do it profitably and you finally get to price parity and you finally get to higher levels of EV adoption and all of a sudden people go, nah, I don't want it. So you're either, <laughs> either discounting your EV and losing money on all that investment or you're, you're not getting there. And, and frankly, the governments aren't going to care. They're going to go, someone's going to figure it out. If we only want to sell EVs, we're going to say we only want to sell EVs. And, you know, so, you know, I don't think it's like you need to fix this now or that it's going to completely doom them. But but customer mis like customer miseducation or customer pain points are in some, you know, could be amplified to view as an existential threat. Yeah. 
Listen, I, one of the things that I, I, I try to point out to people who are against EVs and against decarbonization because they think it's a liberal conspiracy is that, you know, the rest of the world is going this way. China's going this way, and they're our biggest rival on, on the world stage. So, and the EU is going that way. And, and so, well, you know, it's like the... And then you hear the EU is socialist and, and China's communist and we're, we're America. And you know, I'm like, yeah, but we're also part of a global economy and whether you like it or not. And so to be this big an economy and to say, yeah, we're not going, we're not going to agree to any of this. It doesn't make sense from a competitive standpoint. You know, it's, it's people who are, who are going to, you know, reject EVs out of hand because their tribe does uh, are not doing the country any favors from a competitive standpoint. It's to your point. It's happening. It's going to happen for real in terms of critical mass scale volume decarbonization of of mobility between 2040 and 50 and that's not that far away yeah and i think i mean there's a couple like one thing to remember too is if you are one of those cold dead hands people you'll be able to buy a gasoline engine in the u.s till at least 2035 and there will be plenty of them around for some time after that so you know don't worry but on the other hand, I think, I think your point about it's a global market and you need to compete, China is a really great example. China pivoted to EVs hard, and none of the foreign automakers, you know, European or American or even Japanese, moved that, with the exception of Tesla, moved that quickly. And so, first of all, and also China is a larger market than the U.S. now. So if you're a global automaker or if you're, you know, like China is a piece of that, and so you're either changing your business model to say we're only going to play in these other regions or you have to adapt to that and and the other piece of that is because china moved so quickly partially because that market is maturing and their domestic automakers are maturing but partially because of that pivot to evs china is now very quickly becoming a domestic dominated uh region that you know like the foreign automakers are not selling as much there and and there's an example of like it doesn't matter what your home country policy is if it's happening somewhere else in the world, you need to adapt if you want to play in those regions or you need to figure out a way to make money without that in your playbook. You know, what you just said about, because we've seen the numbers, right, that the, the home team companies in China are uh, jumping out in front, which is ironic because when the, uh, the companies like Volkswagen and Ford and, and you know, back in the Chrysler and BMW, they all wanted to go into China because it's the biggest market. The rules were you had to partner with a local company. And I, I remember going to the China, uh, the, the Beijing Auto Show back in 2010 or 11, I think, with General Motors. And they took us to a Buick dealership in, in Beijing. And they had some of their people. And I remember asking one of them, I said, aren't you guys afraid that you're going to give all of this IP to the Chinese automakers, and then one day they're just going to say, eh, we don't need you anymore. And I remember the guy saying, yeah, we're not really worried about that because what they're not very, what he said then, what the Chinese are not very good at is integrating systems into a quality vehicle. And I'm like, 
I think that guy's retired now. <laughs> so he, so he didn't, he wasn't working long enough to sort of realize that that was a short-lived idea, because now, uh, BYD is fully integrated, and and they're going and and they've just done a really smart thing, right? They're selling hundreds of thousands of vehicles now into uh, Europe, into the EU, by by selling into fleets. Rental and corporate fleets, because they've got the ones that are affordable, right? That that fleet buyers are, are, you know, by their mandates, you know, they can't spend seventy thousand uh, dollars, the equivalent of seventy thousand dollars per car. You know, they need the lower price cars. So it's happening. A- anyway, uh, we need to wrap up. But uh, Mike, it sounds like you're a little more optimistic particularly about the future of this. I think it's going to be a hairy, hoary pothole. <laughs> the, the road to EV adoption is going to look like Michigan roads <laughs> before they started fixing them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll leave you with, you know, I, th- I think it's, we're not quite sure. Five years is a long time. Yeah. And um, if you would have guessed where we are now from five years ago, uh, you know, hopefully you're, you're doing well with Warren. You know, you're hanging out with Warren Buffett. Um, and and I, would, I would liken it to – so I agree with you. It's, it's going to be a bumpy road. But I also think it's going to change a lot in the next few years. And also to some degree we don't really know where it's going to be. You know, like a great example is iPhone. You know, it started with – it's a phone and it's also an iPod. And then, and then it was like the phone can do all of these things, and now it's like uh, there's this social media hellscape, and I'm addicted to it. Hopefully, <laughs> the last part won't get to where the cars are. But you know, that's a that all happened in the span of ten to twelve years. Okay, I'm going to give you that, except that, uh, and I may be wrong about this, but there are Apple people, and there are Android people, and I think. That in terms of what we're talking about as far as the everyday usability, interfa- user interface, co- consumer comfort, right? There needs – I think there's much more standardization um, for that part of it, for the ownership experience, the charging experience, the keeping keeping your iPhone, keeping your EV charged to where you need it to be to do what – so, so somebody said something yesterday that was really cogent. It was so simple. And that is success in this space is defined when the consumer is happy. <laughs> and, and I will argue against myself here and go back to your it's going to be a bumpy road, which is there's a lot to sort out. We didn't even get into utilities and things move you know, on a, versus consumer electronics. Things move incredibly slow on an automotive scale, even if it's fast for automotive and fast for everything else in our lives. So, yeah, we're not working on a consumer electronics timescale, and there's a lot more things to sort out. And, again, I still think we'll get there. But, All right. Well, when we talk about utilities, I'll, I'll have you back on because that's a whole <laughs> other episode. So Mike Austin, Guidehouse Insights, uh, check out their stuff on their website and Mike's analysis on on EVs. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. 
AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. Thank you to Mike Austin of Guidehouse Transportation Insights. And thank you for joining us on this journey into electrification. And I also would like to thank our new sponsor, American Axle. We'll be back next week with more guests and more chat about this game of moving away from engines and gasoline to batteries and chargers. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, or you can play us weekly right off the Ward's Auto website. When you see we have posted a new episode, go into the article, just click on the Listen Now graphic, and you'll hear us right from your phone or computer. I'm David Kiley, your host. Graham Mitchell is our engineer. Till next time, enjoy the drive.